Turn your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. We're actually covering three chapters today. Did I say Hebrews? I've been saying that for a while now, haven't I, Paul? Every time I talk to Paul about Hosea, I say Hebrews. Um, I'm sorry if you just found Hebrews. Find the more obscure book of Hosea. It's in the Old Testament. You can find it, if you're new to the Bible, actually, uh, you can find it in the uh, table of contents uh, on, in your Bible. We're looking at three chapters in Hosea this morning, um, covering some ground. And we've, blocked, we've put these chapters together because what I've found is it seems like there's a common theme that ties all three of these chapters together. And so we're going to cover them then as one this morning. So what I want to do is I want to read a little bit from each one of the chapters, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, and then we're going to begin our work in Hosea. So follow along with me as I read. And actually, before I read, why don't I just pray and just ask God to open our ears, uh, and open our minds so that we may have understanding. Father, we do ask that you do so. We ask that you open us to your word this morning, to your truth, so that we may hear your voice. Speak to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, chapter 8. Hosea, my goodness. I might just quit now. Let's see if we can keep going here. Hosea chapter 8. Verse 1, set the trumpet to your lips. Remember, that's that, uh, that's that sign that, that the enemy is drawing near, the war is happening, the battle is about, uh, is about to happen. Set the trumpet to your lips, he says, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. Israel has spurned or rejected the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they make idols for their destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers were, would devour it. Chapter 9, verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them. And the new wine shall fail them. Chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Verse 10. When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them, when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. When we began this series in Hosea, before we began it, when I was preparing for it, I wrote on Facebook that I was going to be preaching in Hosea. And had a number of people say things like, oh, I love the story of Hosea. Now, generally, those are people who haven't read past chapter 3 in Hosea. 
all right? Generally, those are people, maybe, maybe they read, uh, what's the, isn't there a new book about Hosea and Gomer? A novel? Kind of like the Redeeming Love. Redeeming Love. I haven't read it. Is it good? Yeah, uh, is it? Okay, good, good. And maybe the novel goes past chapter three. Maybe it doesn't. No, it do, okay, Laura says it doesn't. <laughs> um, so generally, when we say we love the story of Hosea, or I love Hosea, I'm so excited you're going to be preaching in Hosea, we're thinking like this romantic, beautiful, just out there kind of love. I love it. I, I just want to see Hosea chase after Gomer. Love the story of, of Hosea. Yet, yeah, I've never really read chapters 4 through 14. Um, when I was preparing for this, I was uh, studying, or I was researching, and just trying to find actually other, other uh, current modern preachers who have covered, have sort of done exposition, exposition all the way through the book of Hosea. And I found uh, one, Jeremiah Burroughs, in the early 1600s. He did it. All right? So then I realized I was in good company, because Jeremiah Burroughs did it. Uh, since then, I have found that other preachers, we are, we're, I'm not the only one, I'm not going to claim that, other modern preachers have attempted to go past chapter 3, but usually, guys, we focus on the first three chapters of Hosea, and we stop there because that's like the, the sort of uh, feel-good, warm and fuzzy romance, all right? What we've been doing is we've been venturing into this unknown, uncharted territory, this, these, this dangerous journey of chapters 4 through 14. And what we're finding, what I'm finding at least, and I hope you're finding this as well, um, is that first of all, it's hard. And it's not hard because it's hard to read, because it's actually very poetic, and it's, in some parts it's very, uh, very interesting to read. It's hard, though, because the message itself is hard. It's hard because as we read it, we begin to see ourselves in it. The... The more I studied the text today, the more I saw ourselves, and I mean that culturally speaking as, uh, as Americans first of all, and then second of all as Christian Americans or evangelical Americans, I saw ourselves in the story of Hosea. I saw something that Israel uh, struggled with that led Israel to the, uh, to the discipline of God. And so I titled the sermon today, The Danger of Prosperity. My, my goal this morning is to smash the prosperity gospel through showing you what prosperity did, not even the love for prosperity, but prosperity alone did to the nation of Israel, the danger of prosperity. Let me sort of culturally place this in modern America. Two truths. Number one, we are generally a prosperous country. That's not to say that we don't have poor. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest injustices we face in our country is the prosperity we have and the immense population of the poor that we are constantly fighting against and preaching against. Yet historically speaking, culturally speaking, broadly speaking, America is a prosperous country. What that means is this, you, you yourself may or may not be prosperous, you may or may not have money, but I can almost guarantee you this, if you are a red-blooded American, you define success by material things. You look at guys or girls with stuff, and you say, that is a good life. That's, that's success. You think of, what would I like my life to be like in 10 years? Well, very few of us would define that by, uh, by starting out by saying, well, I would like to financially be exactly where I'm at today, right? We think of, where am I going to be at in 10 years? By financial growth, growth in material things. I would like to own a home. I'd like to get my car paid off. I'd like to uh, have a college fund maybe, or I'd like to, <coughs> like to be able to get an apartment, get my own apartment, depending on where you're at in life. So we define then success and we define growth by prosperity, all right? Secondly, second truth, 
culturally is that our prosperity is shaken in America right now. Like, so we are all afraid of losing prosperity. So we've defined success by stuff, and now what we're seeing is that our stuff is being threatened. Poor economy, furloughs, what if this happens, what if that happens? We're left then with anxiety, we're left then with worry, wondering what would life be like without our stuff. The question I want to begin with and end with this morning is this. If you had nothing, would you still serve God? If you had nothing, would you still serve God? You see, the other thing that we've done in America is we have built an entire religion around prosperity. What has emerged out of the West is what we now call the prosperity gospel, which means that the good news of Jesus is that if you do these things and if you believe in Jesus and if you're faithful to Jesus and if you have enough faith and belief, then God will bless you in this world with health, with wealth, and with happiness. One garden member who's currently out of town, she's being diagnosed with an illness. And as none of us have been able to yet visit her, she had a visit from another Christian. And the Christian told her that her problem is is that she lacks in faith. And if she had more faith, if she had faith that the blood of Jesus is enough to heal her physically today, If she had enough faith, then she would be healed. So, needless to say, she contacted me frantic. (laughs) I lack in faith. What do I do? It's based on this premise, God wants you to be healthy. I was sitting in a Bible study some years ago in, in our barn that we lived in over on the eastern shore on a river. Not a van down by the river, but a barn down by by the river. And we had a Bible study in there, somewhat of like a little house church deal that we did. And one guy, uh, we were talking about suffering. We were talking about, actually in Hebrews, uh, saints are sawn in half. And we're trying to like grapple with that. What does it mean to be sawn in half? And to be a child of, a child of God. And he very clearly rejected any suffering for the Christian life. And he said, God wants you to prosper. God wants you to er, prosper in material, earthly things. God wants you to live. He wants us as Christians to live as his kings and queens. And he will prosper us if we have faith. Like I said, my aim this morning is to just shatter all of that, okay? Okay. I want to shatter the prosperity gospel. Now, some of you will will say, maybe even the majority of us, because we've talked about the prosperity gospel before and the danger of it. Some of you will say, oh, well, uh, not me. I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. I'm going to write myself out of this. All right? What I want to show you, and this is where I hope we can all sort of humble ourselves, I want to show you that the prosperity gospel is not just, when when I even use that term, I'm not talking about sort of like this, this radical driving a Mercedes, my own private jet, wearing $5,000 suits, kind of prosperity gospel. I mean, that's part of it. But that's sort of really a small minority of the prosperity gospel. What I want you to see is that the prosperity gospel is much more subtle, it's much more trickier, and it's much more ingrained into our, into our American Christian existence then you realize we have merged our faith with our love for stuff. And it runs deep. If you had nothing, would you still serve God? All right, so now let's turn to Hosea. We've got these three chapters we're going to work through today. And the central theme here is that they had a lot of stuff. They were prosperous. And I'm going to show that to you, and I'm going to then show you how their prosperity was very dangerous to them and how it actually 
ended up, in the end, it sunk them. So first, well, let, let, me, let me say this. I'm going to give you three uh, destinations as to where their prosperity led them. Three destinations, three places that having a lot of stuff led the nation of Israel. The first one is this. If you want to take notes, the first one is this. Israel, Israel's prosperity led to their fake repentance. Israel's prosperity led to their fake repentance. Chapter 8, verse 2. He says, to me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. So here's God turning his back on Israel, withdrawing his spirit from Israel, and they're saying again, like we talked about last week, but God, we know you. We are, we are Israel. We are Jacob. We are your children. We know you. Israel, he says, has rejected the good. Verse 3, the enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and with their gold, they made idols, which, by the way, they thought were uh, images of God, idols and, and monuments that would sort of reflect and represent God and their relationship with God. They used their gold, they used their silver, and they made these idols for their own destruction. Now, what was their thinking? As they say, God, we know you. What was their thinking? If this were to happen today, it would look something like this. A, a church saying, God, how can, you say that we, uh, that, 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 how can you say that we're false? How can you say that we have a fake kind of repentance? How can you say that, that you are rejecting our worship? We know you. What is our proof? Well, we have pastors that we have put in place. We have raised up deacons in our midst. We have elders that we have put in place. We have built a building for you. We know you. When we look across the American landscape and we think to ourselves, what is, what, what, what is some of this fruit? How do we know that we know God? We often will look to people and things and stuff. We will look to prosperity. I, I was sitting with a friend once in Atlanta, and we were talking about a certain prosperity preacher, and, uh, and the, my friend said, look, we can't knock him. We can't knock him. Look what he's got. Look what he's built. And by their fruit, you will know them. I mean, he's got a massive building. He's got all of these people coming. Look at the prosperity that, he, that, that is attached to his ministry. God then must be behind him. Do you see how this thinking may have been tied in to the way Israel was thinking here? We have, we have kings that we've put in place. We are prosperous. We, we have silver and we have gold. And with the silver and with the, the gold, we've built religious things and monuments and altars. And so God, like how can you say we don't know you? Look at all of this. And God looks and God says, I don't know anything about your kings. I don't know anything about your pastors that you put in place. I don't know anything about your deacons that you put in place. I don't know anything about the multi-million dollar building that you built. I don't know anything about the Christian radio stations that you've made. I don't know anything about these things. You have used your prosperity to further your fake repentance. Now, let me show you this uh, even, even in a deeper way. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Israel is a luxuriant vine. Everybody say luxuriant. That's a rich word, isn't it? So here in the midst then of God's discipline, he actually says Israel is luxurious. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. Like there's stuff happening there. There's things being built there's fruit, there's crops. But then he says this, the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. What are those altars? Look back a page. Look at chapter 8, 
Verse 11, because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. This is their fake repentance. Remember last week we talked about building altars for sacrifices so that we may come and go through our outward forms of repentance so that we can earn God's favor. And God says, I don't care about your sacrifice. I want your heart. I want your love. And here what he's saying is, is the better you got, the more luxuriant you got, Israel. The more fruit you had, the more crops produced. The more of these altars you built, the more it enhanced and promoted your fake repentance. All right, second destination. So first, Israel's prosperity led them to their fake repentance. Second, Israel's prosperity led them to spiritual adultery. Now, we'll stop right here. I could almost hear somebody saying, now, don't you mean Israel's love for prosperity led them to these things? Israel's love for prosperity led them to spiritual adultery? Because I think I heard you say Israel's prosperity led them to spiritual adultery. What I'm actually saying is what I think Hosea is saying. Israel's prosperity led them to spiritual adultery. He says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more it increases, the more altars he builds. Look at the next line. As his country improved, as things got better, as things became more prosperous for them, As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Now, what are these pillars? This will help us to understand what's going on here. And it will also help us to understand this prosperity issue that Israel had. Pillars are these altars that were built for Baal. Now, in the ancient world, the Baals were seen as the gods of the crops. So if you were a farmer and you had crops... Which, by the way, Israel was an agricultural society, so they were growing crops. And if you want your crops to do well, who do you want on your side? Baal. And so the more you, your crops do well, the more fruit that is increased, the better your country gets, the more you want your crops to continue to produce, then the more you need to worship and serve and build altars for Baal. If you, wanted, if you cared about your crops, then you cared about Baal. If you cared about your gold, then you cared about the gods of gold. If you cared about your health, then you cared about the gods of health. Do you see how this worked in the ancient world? Now, here's the tricky thing about these tribal gods. The tricky thing is this. Here, they want their crops to succeed. They want their fruit to continue. So they're serving Baal. They're looking to Baal. They're loving Baal. Who do they love more? Baal or their crops? Their crops. I heard somebody whisper it. Their crops. You can say it. They loved their crops more than they loved Baal. But see, they, they, they saw Baal as the means to get at Baal's stuff, the crops. They saw Baal worshiping and loving and running to Baal's house at night as the means to get more crops. So they loved their crops, and that's what drove them to Baal. Now, let's turn this now into modern-day America, because I would assume that nobody here is a, is a worshiper of Baal. All right? I would assume most people here believe in the God of Israel, at least to some extent. At least you know that's, that's who we're talking about. You may believe in the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who sent Jesus into this world to die for your sins. And you believe that that God is the God of all things. He is the God of crops. He is the God of job promotions. He is the God of money. He is the God of everything that you need in life. He's the God of security. He's the God of giving you a good, prosperous life here on this world. Here is the tricky thing that the prosperity gospel has done and, we, and it's the same thing that's happening here in Israel, yet we're not using Baal, we're using God himself. 
We're saying God is the God of the crops. And we need to get the crops. And so then we will offer our worship and our love to God so that we can get His stuff. What do you love more? Do you love God or do you love His stuff? You, 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 you have legitimate needs. A real need for, for a job promotion. A real need for a job maybe. And you believe that God is the God that is in control of all, these, all of these things. And if we just do it the right way and if we please Him and appease Him, then He will get, uh, give us what we need. You, do you see, guys, how subtle this prosperity thing is? We turn to God. We build altars to God. We, we go through our fake worship for God so that we can get at His stuff. Israel's prosperity led to their spiritual adultery. Led to their turning away, turning to other gods. To use these gods to get the things that they needed. Also, I want you to see this. Look at verse 13 in chapter 10. Not only did their, did their prosperity lead them to spiritual adultery, it also led them to self-dependence. Verse 13, he says, You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped justice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. So here we see now that Israel also has massive security. Like they've got a big army. They've got a multitude of, some versions say, mighty men. They have a multitude of warriors. And here's what he's saying. He's saying you have sowed iniquity, like the seeds that you've been putting into the ground are wickedness. And what they're growing is actually injustice. So why is it that you have so much injustice in the land? Well, there's why. And at the root of that is this. You no longer trust in me, he's saying. You're trusting in your multitudes of warriors, of mighty men, your army, your military, your security. Israel was a secure nation. They were proud to be an Israelite where at least they know they're free. And they trusted them in men. Now friends, I am not knocking an ADT system if you have one on your house or a military. But I want you to see this. This isn't the sinfulness of prosperity. This is the danger of prosperity. The danger of having security is that you can... It can take your eyes and, and, and your faith and your need to trust off of God and place it onto other things. It can place it onto the military, onto the nation itself. It can place your security onto your 401k if you're so lucky to have one, or into your savings account. It can place your security on your children, the things that make you happy. You place your trust in these things where you find your security. The danger of prosperity. So the deception then of, of prosperity is twofold here. One, the deception of the first deception of prosperity, and we can add to this the prosperity gospel, is that you can use God to get at his stuff. And here, prosperity itself is a temptation. There's a danger to having stuff because it demands your worship. The more you have, the more stuff demands your attention and your time and your desire to keep it. And the, and the, the deception is to use God to get His stuff. The second deception here is that prosperity, fame, beauty is all that you need for security in life. You have enough. You have used God to get stuff and you have built enough security to where you can now trust in your things. And you no longer need to cry out to God at 6 a.m. in the morning. You can sleep well. You can eat well. 
you can have fun, you can have happiness, and never again have to think about God. All right, the third place that prosperity led Israel, and, and I, I, am, I am going to say here the love of prosperity. So the third place that the love of prosperity led Israel is to utter nothingness. Another way to put this would be this. God removed Israel of their prosperity. Look at the, cha- the text. Chapter 8, verse 7. What we're going to see Well, let me just read this to you first. For they sow, he says, into the wind. All right? Now, I don't know if you guys have ever um, planted seeds. By the way, I'm trying to start an an urban farming movement. All right? So if you want to get in on this, talk to me afterward. And as we are planting seeds into our urban little backyards, um, uh, it's a good idea to put them in the ground. All right? the, The picture he uses here for Israel as he's using this farming sort of mentality. He says, you have sown seeds, but you have sowed the seeds into the wind, into nothing. Like you've been working hard in verse 6. He talks about their craftsmen. They've been working hard building these buildings and doing these altars and these, these things and this stuff. You've been working very hard, but it's for naught. There's nothing there. You're just like sowing seeds into the wind. All these long hours and days of sweat as you labor. It's just seeds that are sown into the wind. And this is what you will reap. He says, you will reap the whirlwind. Now think about this image. The seeds sown into the wind. And, here, and God is saying, I'll give you wind back. You want, to, you want to reap what you sow? I will give you wind. I will give you the whirlwind of my discipline. I will give you the hurricane of my judgment. Let me show you the whirlwind of God's discipline here. I want, to, I want you to see. And by the way, the whirlwind of God's discipline is this. Utter nothingness. I want, you, I want to show it to you. Uh, first, their, their food is dried up. Look at chapter 8, verse 7 and 8. He says, the standing grain has no heads, it's, it, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. They are a useless vessel, meaning their food is dried up. Like the, the crops that have been producing, and you th- oh, you think Baal has been helping you with this. I will show you who's been giving you these crops, and I will take them away. There's no standing grain on the, on the wheat any longer, on the flour. Their food is dried up, uh, verse, chapter, nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 2. He says, threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. So their, feed, their, their, their food will dry up, their, the wine that they are making will spoil. Secondly, the second whirlwind here is their worship is dried up. Look at chapter 9, verse 4. He says, they shall not uh, pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please Him. It shall be like mourners' bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only, and it shall not be for the house of the Lord. Verse 7, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The, the prophet is a fool. The man of the Spirit is mad because of your great iniquity. What he's saying is this, is your sacrifices mean nothing to me. Your worship is dried up. God here is removing himself, his felt presence from the land to the point where he says your prophets are crazy. Like your, your spiritual men, your pastors, those, and your kings, those people that you have appointed. He's like, they've got no connection with me. The worship in the land is just completely dried up. And then verse 5 is huge. Look at verse 5. He says, what will you do then on the day of the appointed festival? On the day of the feast to the Lord. Now that is always a symbol and a sign of this coming feast day with the Lord. What he's saying is this, you are feasting on earth right now. You are enjoying earthly prosperity. You are finding your hope and your security and your trust in these earthly things. And he's saying, what will you do when Jesus comes back and he puts out the table 
And he invites all of those who have remained with him to feast with him at the table. And there you are turned away. Why are you enjoying your feast now, he's saying? Your food now. What are you going to do then? You're storing nothing up for the feast that is to come. So their food is dried up, their worship is dried up. Thirdly, their children are dried up. Look at verse 11. He says, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a, like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. What he's saying is, I will put an end to the propagation of your country. You will no longer expand. You will no longer grow. He uses even uh, a harsher language. Look at verse 13. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. What he's saying here is, is that you're the, the end result of your love for prosperity, the end result of your spiritual adultery running to these other gods who you think can give you the things that you need and the things that you want will ultimately end in the destruction of your very own children. You are leading them down a path toward their slaughter. Do you realize that? Verse 14. Give them, O Lord, what you will give. Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Do you see the imagery that is used here that is hard? God is threatening an end to their nation. That He will cut them off. They will no longer propagate. They will no longer grow. I am drying up, He's saying, the prosperity in the land from the food that you eat to the worship that you give to your very own children. I'm drying it all up. And then lastly, their power is dried up. Look at chapter 10, verse 7. He says, Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a twig on the face of waters, but it's not a very powerful sight, is it? If you can imagine. A twig floating down a ditch. He's saying, your, your, your power, your mighty men, the armies that you've trusted and the military that you've trusted and all of your security, your 401k, whatever it is that you have built as your security, let me tell you how powerful it's going to be. Let me tell you how powerful your kings will be. They will be like a twig floating on water which will be snapped and which will sink. Guys, do you see what's happening here? Do you see how they have loved their prosperity? They've leaned into their prosperity. They've worshipped their prosperity. They've worshipped the gods who they think can give them their prosperity. And God says, I will remove your prosperity from you. Now the marriage picture here is, is very clear if you remember the story in the first three chapters of Hosea with Gomer going off to her lovers. And do you remember when she would get to her lover's house? She would have there her wine, her oil, her grain. Do you remember that? So Gomer then loved prosperity. She loved the things that she would get at her lover's house. Little did she know that Hosea was the one coming behind supplying those things for her. Do you remember this? Hosea was like, Look, she didn't even realize that it's me who has been giving her the wine and the oil and the, the grain. And so then what did Hosea do? Hosea said, I will remove those things. I will let her experience hunger. I will remove her drink from her. I will let her go without 
No. Is that because Hosea loves Gomer? Or is that because Hosea is just trying to be mean to Gomer? This is key to understanding this passage here. Because we can be so focused on the discipline of God here. We can be so focused on, on how angry it seems that God is in His discipline process as He removes these, the prosperity from Israel. And then we can lo- sort of lift that up and try to fear, make everybody uh, af- afraid of this God and, and turn to this God or you're going to be damned forever and, and the hellfires are just like licking up around your ankles and completely miss the bigger picture of what's happening here. God's discipline, I want you to hear this, His discipline for Israel is the other side of the love coin. His discipline for Israel comes from His love for Israel. As Hosea removed the goods and the prosperity from Gomer, it was so that Gomer would feel these things and turn back to that which was only good for her. Now, I experience this regularly as a dad. I can think of countless times that my children have wanted a cookie. And I say something like, no, you can't have a cookie now. And, you know, maybe it's because I just feel like saying no. Because that's sometimes what we dads do, right? Other times it's, (coughs) excuse me, it's because they really shouldn't be eating a cookie right now. Like maybe we're going to eat dinner. Or maybe it's time to go to sleep and they need to keep the sugar out of their system. But I'll say, no, you can't have a cookie. Now, what if, and I'm not going to say if this has ever, ever really happened, all right? Just theoretically speaking, what if, what if behind my back, um, one of my children took the cookie anyway? And then I saw them take the cookie, or I saw evidence of the cookie in their pillowcase or something like that. And then I disciplined for that, disciplined them for that. Now listen, as a dad, I never punish my kids, I discipline my kids. As a dad, I don't want to hurt my kids, I want to love my kids. As a dad, I don't want to just take out my anger on my kids and smack them because they just disobeyed and they hurt my pride as a father. But I know that, my, that, that I am more important than the cookie, all right? I know that them learning what it means to be obedient to me is more important for them than eating a cookie right now. Now, at the end of the day, is the cookie that big of a deal? I mean, at the end of the day, is the, is the cookie going to like hurt them or make them, I don't know, unhealthy or give them high blood pressure or something like that? Like at the end of the day, a cookie's a cookie, right? It's just a cookie. And that's sometimes why, what they don't understand. They're like, it's just a cookie. Why can't I have this? At the end of the day, it's not that big of a deal. What is a big deal is that they obey me. That they learn to obey me. That is far more valuable than them than them enjoying a cookie in the moment. Do you see how that works? And then that is an opportunity then for me to look at them and say, I am not angry with you because you stole the cookie. I'm not, I'm not angry with you. I'm not hitting you because of that. All right? I'm not hitting you because I'm because I was because I'm angry. I'm not angry before or after. Like I love you. And I want you to obey me. Why? Because I'm better than the cookie. And you learning to obey me is better than receiving this thing right now. God's discipline for His children is His love for them. God's removal of prosperity, or in this case, the threat of removal of prosperity from Israel is His covenant love. It is the love that we see in the broken marriage of Gomer and Hosea. All of this, all, all these three chapters of the, that are hard to read and hard truths and discipline and judgment, the goal is right there in verse 12. 
Now let me preface this for you really quickly. I was sitting in my office over at 1411 one day and I saw a dude out front jogging and then jumping and then jogging again and then sprinting and then jumping and I was like, this guy's out of his mind. <laughs> and he was wearing like a bag, you know, like this big heavy coat sort of deal and it was July. And I thought like he's literally out of it. Like I just put it, you know, it's like, I'm, you know, it's Baltimore. <laughs> and uh, then I saw him a couple days later, same sort of thing going on. And then he had a jump rope with him. He's, he's skipping rope. <laughs> Looks fun. Hopscotch is next, I guess. <laughs> I finally had a conversation with this dude. Find out that he's a professional lightweight boxer. All right. Now, if you're just watching him, he looks a little insane. He looks a little out of his mind, all right? That's just a little too much. Like, you don't need to be airboxing in the middle of Utah, all right? <laughs> but, oh, if we followed him to the ring, and we saw him step into the ring with the lights on him, it would make sense, Right? So for him then, the goal, that fight where he puts the, the gloves on and he steps into the ring, that is the goal of all of the running and skipping and, and push-ups and the diet that he was, just everything that didn't make sense when you were just looking at it. But now we see him in the ring and it makes sense. This is what's happening here. We go through these first three chapters and it, it just seems like senseless judgment. But then we see the goal. Look at verse 12. This is the goal. This is stepping into the ring. He says this, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that He may come, and this is the, this is the stepping into the ring moment, and rain righteousness upon you. Let's break this down really quickly. There's that sowing and reaping imagery. What are you sowing? You reap what you sow. Have you ever heard that phrase before? So as Israel here, they sowed wickedness, they reaped injustice. We may sow unforgiveness and we reap anger. We may sow greed and we reap discontentment. We may sow bitterness and and we reap classism and racism. What do you reap and what do you sow? Now what he's saying here is, is instead of sowing into the wind... Something that will, will never give you anything good back. He say, it says, sow righteousness. What does that mean? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do to the glory of God. This is a call for us to wake up. To wake up from our sleep, from our long night of sin, sleeping in our desire for stuff and prosperity and things. And he's saying, look, do everything not for your gain, but for the glory of God. When you eat, when you eat food, don't let the food become an idol to you, but let the food turn your delight toward the giver of the food and let it allow yourself to delight in God. When you drink, don't let the drink become an idol to you but let it turn you to glorify God. When you work, don't let your work become an idol, but allow it to turn your delight toward God. When you are prosperous, don't let your prosperity become an idol or the thing itself, but let the good gifts simply turn your delight toward the giver of good gifts. He says, so then in righteousness, Break up the fallow ground. What does that mean? That is your uncultivated heart. You've been coming to church. You've been going through these outward forms of repentance, yet the seeds have not taken root. Why? It's because your heart is not cultivated. You need to break up the ground. You need to cultivate the heart. You need to take a shovel to it and an axe to it even and start breaking at the hard ground of your heart. How does that happen? It's simple. We allow the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin. That is the cultivation of our heart. We allow our, the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin and often cultivation can hurt, but this is what it does. It turns us to seek the Lord. 
when our hearts are cultivated, when we are convicted of our sin, we then turn to Christ. And that's the goal here, for it is time, he says, to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open the salvation that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. It's hard to stay dry in a rainstorm, isn't it? My grandfather, when I was growing up and it was storming outside and a lot of rain, we were going out into it, he would always say, don't get wet. And it was sort of like a joke, like when you go into the rain, you're going to get wet. It's really hard to stay dry in the rain. Listen, the picture of the righteousness of Christ is rain here. A storm of rain that is falling upon those who have cultivated Hearts, Christ here is coming as the reign of justifying righteousness and He's reigning upon you more righteousness than you can ever imagine. How much righteousness? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we in Him might become the righteousness of God. He is raining upon us more righteousness than we can imagine the very righteousness of God. The blessings, friends, that we talk about, that we have as Christians, are not just material blessings. That is too little for us. The blessings that we have as Christians is the reigning righteousness of God in which God looks at us and He says, I love you as much as I love my very own Son, Jesus Christ. His righteousness has been reigned upon all who look to Christ. The blood of Christ reigns upon us to forgive us of our sins. I know you can't see it, but I am covered in blood right now. If I could see it right now, it would look really bloody out there. We've been rained on in the blood of Christ, which is our forgiveness of sins. But it doesn't stop there. It's His very own righteousness that is given to us. And it's hard to stay dry in the rain. Friends, that is the good news. That is the goal. This is what this has been leading us to. This is sort of the weight that comes down at the bottom of this thing. The goal here is the gospel. And the gospel is simple. The prosperity gospel, very complex. Like all of these things that we have to do in order to achieve, in order to have a blessed life, and maybe we will or maybe we won't make it. I don't know if I have enough faith. Maybe whatever. It's complex. I don't even understand it. But the gospel of Christ is simple. Yet it's hard. What it requires is a cultivated soul. A soul that has allowed the acts of the Holy Spirit to break up its ground. And a soul then that turns to Christ. But friends, when we turn to Christ, we see all that we need. And He reigns on us the righteousness of God. Now, I want to confront one last thing about the prosperity gospel this morning before we close. A prosperity teacher would pretty much agree with me. There would be a small sort of nuanced difference. And it would be this. So seeds of righteousness break up the uncultivated soil of your heart. Look to Christ and He will, and he will reign earthly prosperity upon you. He will rain blessings of earthly prosperity upon you. I want to end with two questions to evaluate the state of your soul. Number one, would you rather be rained on in earthly prosperity 
or would you rather be reigned on in the righteousness of Christ? The way that we answer that question says a lot about your soul. A love of prosperity, a love of stuff, leads you to utter nothingness because at the end of the day, there's nothing really there. Prosperity, beauty, fame, success at work, whatever it is that you're longing for, while morally neutral, can be very dangerous because it can distract your eyes from the one who reigns in righteousness. And you begin to believe that the reigning on of earthly prosperity is the goal. On the contrary, the reigning of righteousness leads a sinner to become a saint. And we find there the greatest satisfaction that money cannot buy. I can only imagine a man who is, who is called out of earthly prosperity. A man who leaves father and leaves mother. A man who leaves home. And he, in following Christ, goes to some of the hardest places in this world. Takes the gospel to some of the darkest corners. To some of the most dangerous corners in this world. And his preaching of the gospel then finds, he finds himself with a gun pointed at his head. And as he is told to stop preaching the gospel, he doesn't. And as the trigger is pulled, his soul is ushered from this temporary earth. And it's ushered to that city that is to come. You see, in Hebrews, there are those who are, are, are sawn in half. There are wives who receive back their husbands dead. There are those who are persecuted. They go about in chains. They're hiding out in caves. What is their motivation? As they lose their life in this world, as they lose their prosperity in this world, what is their motivation? It is that city that is to come. It is the city that has foundations. And as that trigger is pulled, immediately we are transferred from being strangers and foreigners passing through into the city that is to come. And we run toward it and we see it, the city outside the gates of prosperity, because there we see Christ. And by the way, in the city that is to come, we walk on gold. Like what... What we treasure here on earth is what we make the streets out of there. Because we found a greater prosperity. And that is the adoption into the family of God. The last question I want to lead, lead, lead you with is this. This is your final test. Can you serve God with nothing? Can you serve God with nothing? If you have right now, if you lost... Can you still serve God? If you don't have, and you have true needs, and I don't mean any of this to minimize true physical needs, and we ought to be people of mercy and make sure that needs are met, but if your needs are not ever met in the way that you think they need to be, can you still serve God? Christ is your righteousness. Cherish it more than you cherish earthly possessions. And when you do, you find the blessings of sonship and daughtership poured out upon you and more joy than prosperity can ever bring you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we ask that you do seal these truths in our hearts, that you take our eyes off of stuff, that we don't worship you just so we can get, but that we... Uh, but that we come to you with nothing and that, we, uh, and that we find you to be everything that we need. God, uh, some, we, we live in a prosperous country. Uh, even the poor in our country have, uh, for the most part, needs met. God, let us, not, um, let us not feel guilty for having food on our table today for lunch, but let us... Uh, let that food, let the things that we have turn our hearts 
even away from material stuff and let it turn our hearts to you. May we give thanks to you. May we delight in you. May we love the giver more than we love the gifts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.